This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the newest edition in the Compliance Podcast Network, my latest podcast, Compliance and Coronavirus. As the voice of compliance, I wanted to start a podcast which will help bring both clarity and sanity to the field of compliance, the compliance practitioner, and indeed the compliance profession during this worldwide health and healthcare crisis. Taking up a variety of topics as diverse as working from home to sporting events, to the role of the board of directors, to crisis management, to the role of supply chains. We will look at all of these in this podcast. If you have a topic you'd like covered on compliance and coronavirus, please let me know. I'd be happy to do a podcast on it. Welcome to Exeger Week on Compliance and Coronavirus. We have three uh, persons from Exeger. On this week's podcast series, we begin with Michael Berber. Michael is the president and CEO of Exeger, and he talks to us about IPOs, M&A work, and SPACs in the time of coronavirus and COVID-19. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and today I have with me Michael Berber. Michael is the president and CEO at Exeger. First of all, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Oh, my pleasure, Tom. So one of the uh, things that I think is going to be an outcome of uh, COVID-19 was in the first half of the year, we saw a decrease in the number of uh, M&A work, uh, IPOs, uh, those types of business transactions. So I'm in Houston, obviously focused on the energy industry, uh, the economic dislocation uh, in addition to COVID-19, has been very high, lots of bankruptcies. It's a long-winded way of me saying I think things are going to explode in Q3, Q4, and into 2021 around um, both corporate refinancing and M&A work. And I wondered, if Michael, if I could start by asking you, what do you see as the impact of COVID on IPOs, and do you see really uh, something changing now? Yeah, so uh, clearly, if you look at March 15th, um, when it hit, IPOs basically fell off, the, uh, fell off the map. We went from two IPOs in, uh, well, if you go back to January, there were six uh, IPOs. In February, there were 11. In March uh, 15th, there were two. And March 31st, there were zero um, so really, uh, <laughs> the ideal activity uh, really fell off a cliff. But then you see it turn around uh, remarkably. Uh, in April, you had four. Uh, in May, you had seven. And in June, you had 27. In July, 29. And that's continued. And I think what's happened is people have recognized that, um, that this is temporary. Certainly, COVID is going to be with us for a long time. But I think that the businesses... Um, that had anticipated going public are now revisiting it. So there will be some, obviously, that that won't be able to go public because of their performance. Uh, but then there's a whole series of them, whether it's in healthcare, um, uh, medical device, um, even technology, where uh, not only have the businesses not stalled, uh, but in fact, they've continued to grow. And so those became uh, very natural candidates uh, to continue uh, to go down the IPO route. The other thing, uh, the other phenomena, though, that we've seen very much in that marketplace is, um, is the incidence of, of SPACs, uh, special purpose acquisition corporations. Um, SPAC activity has really uh, taken off 
during uh, uh, COVID, you know, you would at a certain level, you would expect all activity to stop. But really, um, special acquisition corporations are just another, uh, and we can talk more about them, but it really is a form of IPO. And um, the activity in that market has really uh, has been more robust, frankly, uh, in a post-COVID world um, than it was in a pre-COVID world. Michael, could you define for us or tell us what a SPAC is? Yeah, so what a SPAC is, it's a special purpose acquisition corporation, um, often referred to as a blank check corporation. And these are pools of capital that are basically raised on a premise. Uh, the premise could be uh, that, that the SPAC itself is going to acquire a company in a particular area. So whether it's technology, it could be medical. Uh, and as we've seen, um, it can be uh, even in, in professional sports. And so um, what it is, it's a pool of capital that is raised as an initial public offering. But once the money is raised, it actually sits in a trust. Um, and, and basically, the SPAC has two years uh, in which to find uh, an acquisition that they would consider fits the mandate that they have. Uh, and then that acquisition then has to be voted on by the shareholders. So it's another way, if you will, for companies ultimately to, to take companies public. So when the SPAC acquires an entity that entity then goes on to become the core entity within the, um, the SPAC. And basically um, what people feel is that in the environment that we're in, and it was really, it was building up long before uh, 2020 and and the coronavirus. But what people feel um, is that it's an easier way for companies ultimately to go public that because the company itself that's being sold into the SPAC would have been the company that went public before, it would have been subject to all of the scrutiny of, of a company that has to do an initial public offering. Whereas if it gets acquired into a SPAC, it has uh, less that actually has to occur in order for it to actually close and, and become, in effect, an M&A. It really becomes an acquisition of the SPAC as opposed to a company that in and of itself is going public. Michael, could you uh, perhaps uh, spend a few minutes explaining uh, what a SPAC is and uh, how it's being used uh, a little bit differently than IPOs are? So, so the comp- as I said, so interestingly enough, the SPAC itself trades. So it, it of itself trades as a publicly traded company, and it basically what it has is a bank account um, with an amount of money, and then it has a currency. So, for example, a SPAC that raises $250 million of cash also has the currency of the stock that it has to actually go and facilitate a transaction. And so at the time that the capital is being raised, um, the team, if you will, that supports the SPAC, the, the, the ones that are promoting it. So it'll be an investment bank, but there will be people on the headline that have, you know, direct experience, uh, in doing the type of acquisition that they're contemplating with the SPAC. Um, so if they're contemplating, well, uh, there's one that's sort of interesting and it's out there. It's called Redbird. Uh, Redbird, uh, exists. Um, it's, it's being promoted by Billy Bean and others. And you'll remember Billy Bean was the executive vice president of baseball operations for Oakland A's. He's really the one that created the money ball theory. And, and so at the end of the day, what, what uh, Redbird has done is they've gone public with a SPAC with the expectation that they'll go out and they'll make an acquisition in the sports media and data analytics space. Um, but really their focus is professional sports. And so, you know, at the end of the day, when people are evaluating whether or not to invest 
in a SPAC or not, um, they'll make the decision uh, based upon the management team uh, that's uh, based on the management team that's in place for the SPAC. Does the SPAC have special expertise or perhaps uh, uh, consultants who can help that company prepare for an ultimate IPO? Is that part of the role of the SPAC? No, it's a, it's a great question. Look, at the end of the day, the people that are associated with the uh, with the SPAC are promoters. Um, they're people that um, uh, certainly they can add value to the company that's ultimately acquired, but they have to be seen really as uh, promoters. And um, um, so there isn't an expectation that they will have all of the, uh, you know, the management uh, set up um, to do, uh, to do all of these, uh, to do all of these things. Anyway, um, when they do actually acquire an entity, um, that entity will usually like, if you've done a $500 million SPAC, that means there's $500 million of cash, but the expectation is that you will be doing an acquisition that could be one and a half billion, two billion, two and a half billion. So these are large companies uh, that often are going to be done within these SPACs. It's not necessarily the case, but today, in today's SPAC world, um, most of the companies that are going to be acquired into the SPAC are very, very large companies will have, you know, major infrastructure, including all the management that you've identified. Does this level of uh, expertise and help uh, uh, move down to the sort of uh, control functions within an organization, so a general counsel, a chief compliance officer, HR, et cetera, or does the acquired entity, is it expected to have those functions and grow those so that it can go IPO? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, whether it's directly with my clients or not, I mean, the, the new world we're in, whether you're distressed or not, it's just much, much more difficult uh, to do the level of due diligence that you need to do in order to be satisfied. At the same time, deals are getting done. And, and <laughs> I look, I think about a friend of mine recently um, was applying. It was a company that was obviously uh, the company he got involved in was was very negatively affected by um, COVID. They're in the travel related industry and they decided to make a CEO change. And so he had gone through the process uh, to become the new CEO until finally the board said, OK, we're, we're down to two candidates. We want to meet these people. I know we're in a COVID-19 world, but we really want to meet these people. Well, two weeks later, they hired them straight from video uh, because this was in the early days. And just the idea of getting together just, was, it w- just wasn't going to happen. And so, um, you know, that's just an example. I mean, if you're investing in a company, obviously, you typically would want to spend significant amounts of time with the management team uh, and, you know, before you made that decision. Well, now, uh, I'm involved in one acquisition now, it would be a, it'll be a substantial deal for five, $600 million. It could conceivably get done without any, uh, any physical contact other than the type of contact that we're having now. Um, in terms of documents, you know, for, for, for hit for years, we've all been working off of data sites, um, where documents are, are uploaded, you know, electronically into a secure, uh, environment and everybody gets to review those documents uh, in the normal course, you know, so that mm, fundamentally hasn't changed. Um, you know, they'll still be uploaded and still be there, but you know, all of the communications and all the analysis that would get done is, is being effectively done in, in these remote sites. But, um, 
Um, you can expect, you know, I've seen it, whether it's on the debt side, the M&A side, the IPO side, companies are finding ways to continue to, to transact. Uh, if I could maybe now turn to a different type of uh, M&A work, and that's M&A around distressed entities. As I mentioned, I'm in Houston, a lot of energy company bankruptcies, but companies that even are not in bankruptcy may be distressed and may be good candidates for acquisition moving into Q3 and Q4. How are companies able to appropriately evaluate through due diligence both uh, finances and other types of controls at this point? Is that a challenge you're seeing with your clients? No, look, it's definitely not business as it was. The question is, you know, what are people prepared to pay? I think that generally, um, when you get into these environments, people want to pay less because there's just a lot of uncertainty. But then we can all look at, you know, several companies that have IPO'd and have taken off dramatically. Um, and you can look at other publicly traded companies, just look at Peloton and look what's happened there. Look at Zoom, look what's happened there. So it really comes down to, you know, are you involved in a company um, that has unique COVID potential or are you involved with a company that has uniquely uh, and negatively been affected by COVID? So, um, but what I will say is, is that uh, there's a lot of capital out there and there's more capital now sitting in private equity than at any time in our history. That hasn't changed and funds continue to be raised. And all of these SPACs that are going public, you know, just to give you an order of magnitude, in, um, in 2017, there were 34 SPACs uh, that raised about $10 billion. In 18, there were 46 that, that raised about 10. In 19, there were 59 that raised 13. And then here's the incredible piece. In 20, 70 SPACs have already gone public, raising more than $27 billion. So really, it is a sign that, number one, all of that money that's, that's been raised has to be invested. Um, and it has to be invested within a time frame. In the case of a SPAC, it's two years. So, you know, the vintage 2018, all those funds have to be, have to be uh, spent in the next, um, you know, in the next few months. Um, the, the funds being raised in 2020 have two years to be to to be invested, and so I think that you have a unique dynamic here where the good assets are going to continue to trade at high prices, um, but that there's going to be a series of uh, assets that are that are challenged, and there's money for both. Um, so I think I think you're going to you're seeing unprecedented SPAC volume. I think the IPO volumes in 2020 will end up exceeding uh, 2019. And I think you're going to see a, a series of uh, private equity deals uh, distressed and otherwise. So by the end of this year, um, if people were just looking at stats and didn't know anything about COVID-19, by the end of this year, my feeling is, is that the numbers will reflect uh, a very positive year. Michael, we're both old enough to know the phrase, follow the money. And it seems to me that by taking that phrase and perhaps turning it around and going back to the money, we see... Uh, why there's such an opportunity for SPACs, for IPOs, for traditional M&A work, and that it's uh, only going to increase. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I'd say, but follow the money and ask really good questions. I think what we've, what we've learned now is, look, in every negative event, uh, whether it's 9-11, whether it's, uh, you know, 2007 and the Great Depression, uh, Great Recession, 
um, or whether it's COVID-19. You know, before, if, if, if you were excited about uh, the airline industry and then 2000 uh, and 9-11 happened, um, you saw the effects in the airline industry. But, but what you also saw is that the airline industry came back uh, in its entirety. Um, then you see 2000 and uh, 2008, 2009, obviously a huge impact from, from um, the Great Recession. And again, we see the airline industries and the hotel industries uh, come back and travel and leisure. But then you see COVID-19 and mm, we're not so sure, right? We're not so sure. Uh, maybe the landscape's changed forever. Maybe the world that we're living in, elements of it, will never be recovered. And so I think, uh, and at the same time, will there be new opportunities? You know, will there be new opportunities uh, that uniquely arrive because of uh, because of the world that we're in? So I think the lens that people have to look through now has to be a very different lens uh, because the certainties or uncertainties associated with COVID-19 are going to take time to really work themselves out. And I think, you know, people are going to have to really think through and game out what the pandemic's going to look like over the next two, three years, and then finally over the long, long term. And, and I think investment decisions will be different, uh, will be permanently different. That doesn't mean that there aren't lots of great things to invest in. I think people will look at office space with a, with a question mark, but people will look at residential space uh, as a very solid mark because in work from home, there's one thing that's certain people need a home. And so, uh, I, I think, I think it'll be very interesting, uh, how models get developed to reflect uh, the new world we're in. Well, Michael, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I was wondering if uh, any of our listeners wanted more information on Exeter. Where could they go? Oh, the best place to go uh, would be to our LinkedIn page. Um, that's to follow us on LinkedIn. We, we certainly publish a lot of information there. And, and then, of course, the other place to go would be to uh, our website, where, where, again, we, we, we publish a lot of content and obviously have a lot of information about us. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you very much, Tom. I really appreciate it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance and Coronavirus. This is the only B2B podcast which brings clear and sane information for both the compliance professional and the business executive. If I could ask you uh, to do one thing, if you could tell one person about this podcast, I'm trying to get the word out uh, about this most unique podcast in the compliance podcast network so if you could tell one person about it send them a copy send them a link and do something uh, to help me publicize this podcast i would greatly appreciate it compliance and coronavirus is a production of the compliance podcast network and it appears tuesday wednesday and thursday of each week thanks again for listening and i hope you'll join me again for another episode This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.